I'll ask you to take your Bibles and join me in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 in the Old Testament. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Charlie would be glad to drop one uh, in your hand. And there is this little note page. If you'll grab that as well, I think you'll find that helpful uh, along the way. One of the more uh, unique challenges that comes with a verse-by-verse chapter-by-chapter study of this particular Old Testament book is that the human writer, who is Solomon, is prone to repeating himself. As we have noted from the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, it is essentially a diary, and, and Solomon is, is sharing his diary with us. It's the diary that he kept as he went on a no-holds-barred search for a meaningful life, but a meaningful life where, church? Under the sun, yes, we've figured that out. He went on a desperate search for a fulfilling, purpose-driven, satisfying life without God in it. Going to get competition here for just a second. (laughs) Well, we'll find out (laughs) whose car that is. Can we stay focused? All right, right on. Good, good, good. So he goes on this desperate search for a fulfilling, meaningful life without God in his life, a life lived under the sun. And therein lies the value of the book of Ecclesiastes for us because we get to learn from his search, from his mistakes. He tells us in many different ways that life under the sun just doesn't work. It's futile, it's empty, it's meaningless. Those are some of his terms for a life lived without God in it. And it only makes sense that, that life that's going to be meaningful is going to have God as a part of it. So it's going to be life above the sun. And occasionally Solomon pokes his head above the sun, but not an awful lot till the very end. As is often the case with someone keeping a diary, though, there is a tendency to repeat things. Now, there's nothing wrong with that here in the book of Ecclesiastes. If the Holy Spirit is inspiring Solomon to repeat, then he repeats. However, for us, in our verse-by-verse approach, this repetition can become a little bit tedious and bogged-down feeling. And so because chapter 8 is largely a repetition of observations and insights that we have already unpacked in earlier chapters, would you be agreeable to us just quickly surveying Chapter 8, which will then allow us to zero in on chapter 9 this morning and verses 1 through 6. Would you be okay if we did that? Great. I didn't, that wasn't super convincing, but, but great. Because that's exactly what we're going to do, whether you're okay with it or not. That's kind of how it's going to go this morning. I was just trying to be diplomatic. But chapter 9, verses 1 through 6 is the section that we really want to focus on. And it's a section about hope. At first blush, it's going to sound a lot like death and dying and, and, and things like that. But it's actually going to be a section that shouts hope uh, for all who are yet living. And, and that truth will take us straight into our time of remembering Jesus at the table in just a little bit. Because certainly he is our living hope. Amen. Amen. 
So your Bible's open to chapter 8, and as chapter 8 opens, Solomon hits on a theme that we have heard him hit on many times in the first seven chapters, the importance of, of esteeming and valuing and desiring wisdom, God's wisdom in your life. Verse 1, he says, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. He's simply saying esteem and value wisdom it's it's worth it to pursue that and so after he fires off that reminder then he offers us some advice uh, for those of us who find ourselves under authorities there are authorities that are over us and he speaks to that here as a king himself solomon has a unique perspective on 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 what curries royal favor and blessing and what might just cost you your life and so he speaks to that in verses two and following he says I keep the, king, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. In other words, the king's in charge. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Nobody gets to do that. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of his death. There's no discharge from war, nor, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done. Where, church? Under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Now, democracies were unheard of in 900 B.C. Everyone lived under an authority which they had no part in establishing. They didn't get to vote on it. And there was no court of appeals. The king was the ultimate authority. How should the common person relate to a kingly position or really any position of authority? Solomon's counsel? Well, there's blessing that comes when you honor the authorities that are over you. And this is certainly a principle that we find repeated in the New Testament in a number of places. Romans 13, Titus chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 2. And maybe you would recall these words from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Well, that's just a rephrasing of what, what Solomon's talking about in Ecclesiastes here. It's his counsel. All authority is established by God, and therefore we are to submit to the authorities that are over us really as an act of reverence to the one, to God, who has established those authorities. So obeying civil government or our boss at work or our teacher at school, that's just as as much uh, a part of of a God-honoring walk and lifestyle as being a truthful Christian and and forgiving and, and serving in your church to be one who recognizes and reverences authorities. A high and holy view of God's sovereign rule over our world trickles down to respect for the authorities, earthly authorities that are above us. It could be said that that as Christians and as the Christian community, 
We should be the ones who win the Good Citizenship Award every year, right? Do you agree with that? We're called to do that. That's, that's just part of living well for the Lord, to honor the authorities that are over us. Then in verses 10 to 13, Solomon returns to another theme he has touched on many times, and it's the theme of injustice. Verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried, They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such wicked things. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. There's no justice. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Here Solomon groans. He groans that people who did really horrible things somehow end up portrayed as heroes, even in the very places where they committed their crimes. He says, that's not right. That's unjust. How, how, somehow corrupt politicians still get parks and streets named after them. That's not just, Solomon laments. People commit horrific crimes and, and, and get off on a technicality because of a skilled, shrewd lawyer. That's not just. Drives law enforcement crazy, re-arresting re- the same criminal over and over and over because there's no justice. Lawlessness is not discouraged, but it's encouraged, says Solomon, because there's no justice under the sun. This is what Solomon sees. But it's what you and I see too, isn't it? This is our world today. There's no justice, it seems. We lament that. Solomon laments that. In verses 14 and 15, he returns to a theme that he has lamented many times prior to this. Life is not fair. Have you heard Solomon say that? We've heard him say that a number of times so far. Life is not fair, and he's absolutely right. We all say amen to that. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. In other words, this makes no sense. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Life is not fair. The righteous often get what the wicked deserve. The wicked often get what the righteous deserve. He said that back in chapter 7, verse 15, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. In other words, the good die young and the wicked get lots of birthdays and that's not fair. (laughs) About the best you can do, Solomon says, under the sun is try to squeeze a little bit of joy from the grapes of unfairness. Really? Hmm. Well, Solomon closes out this cheery chapter with, with, with one more thought. And again, it's, it's kind of a heavy, somber vibe that goes with it. It's verses 16 and 17. 
And I'm going to read these two verses for us from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase called The Message. I think you'll appreciate how he renders these two verses. When I determined to load up on wisdom and examine everything taking place under the sun, I realized that if you keep your eyes open day and night without even blinking, you'll still never figure out the meaning of what God is doing under the sun. Search as hard as you like. You're not going to make sense of it. No matter how smart you are, you won't get to the bottom of it. (laughs) The wisest man who ever lives says flat out, God's ways are too deep. They are too high. Unknowable. And you know what, church family? God would heartily agree with that, wouldn't he? He would say, Solomon, you are spot on right with that assessment. You recall the words of God through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9? My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways aren't your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts you nailed it solomon you nailed it god's ways are not knowable a recurring and and at times frustrating theme for solomon he wants to know but he can't now that's the that brings us to the end of chapter eight we're sitting position now at the front of chapter nine and just when you would think that maybe solomon would would stop pressing the dark agenda and the depressing, going to depressing places, guess where he wants to go next? He wants to talk about death. We say, oh boy, can't wait. Now remember, I did say this opening portion of chapter 9 is about hope. And I meant that when I said that. Although we're going to have to work a little bit to get to the hope, it is there for us. And I'm confident that you're willing to work with me as we tackle these first six verses. Are you ready to go? Let's do it. Let me read the verses for us and get the lay of the land, and then we'll see what, what we have here. Solomon writes, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has, what's the word there? Hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. (laughs) For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Hmm, Not the cheeriest text you've ever read. Now, as we have seen, Solomon vacillates between two perspectives on life. We've already touched on this at the very beginning. Most of Ecclesiastes is describing a search for meaning in your life without God, as if there was no God. Man left entirely to himself and to his own devices to try to extract a fulfilling life under the sun. 
mankind without God in his life. The other perspective that Solomon touches on is life that goes above the sun where God is. Human life lived in relationship with God. Life lived in acknowledgement of God. God's not just a, a piece of my life. He is my life. He's my goal. He's the end. The, the only way to have a meaningful, satisfying life. Solomon touches on both of those in this particular section. He describes both of these perspectives for us. Now, on your note page, he leads off with this observation. Nothing is random with God. Would you agree with that? Nothing is random with God. He's in control of everything. That's verse 1. Again, drawing upon Eugene Peterson's kind of unique insight into to translation, here's how he renders this verse. Well, I took all this in and I thought it through, inside and out. Doesn't that sound like Solomon? Here's what I understood. The good, the wise, and all they do are in what? God's hands. God's hands. But day by day, whether it's love or hate that they're dealing with, they don't know. Anything's possible, he says. Solomon's point is that people must approach unseen and unknown their future without any knowledge. They have to move into their future. We make our plans. We try to to peer around the corner of our lives to see what is coming. But Solomon says, in the end, you just don't know what's coming. You can't see anything that's going to happen. Would you agree with that? I think we would agree with that. None of us knows what's going to happen by the end of this day. No matter how hard we search or try, we just don't know. We might have assumptions, but we don't know. Now, just a few verses from here, same chapter, verse 12, Solomon will say that we are like fish that are caught in a net or a bird that's caught in a snare. The fish was just swimming along, enjoying the pond. Oh, what do you know? There's a big juicy worm. Bites the worm and in one moment yanked out of the water and into a frying pan. Didn't see that coming. Everything seemed great and then just like that. Solomon says, that's how life works. That's how it works. And we see this all the time, don't we? We see this truth played out. Often with health matters, we see this truth played out. One Sunday, one of our brothers or sisters is sitting right next to us, and we stood up and we hugged them during the greeting time, and, and, then, and then they go to a doctor's visit at that week, and, 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 and by next Sunday, this friend is scheduled for surgery and then chemo. Didn't see that coming. Yanked from the pond, just like that. We're still reeling from yet another mass shooting in our country, aren't we? It's just another day at a Parkland, Florida high school. Just another day, like every other day. By day's end, 17 students and teachers are dead. 17 more are wounded. Lives are ended. Families are devastated. A nation is angry. Day by day, whether it's love or hate, they're dealing with, they don't know. 
anything's possible. This past weekend at this marriage retreat, Lisa and I were sharing with one of the other couples from our church, and we learned that all four of us uh, shared a common acquaintance. We didn't know that, but we did. And they proceeded to tell us of this man that we all mutually knew. He was a Christian man in his mid-50s. Two days before the retreat, he's mowing his lawn, and suddenly he collapses, massive heart attack, and he's dead instantly. No signs, no warning, like the fish caught in a net. His earthly journey is over, just like that. Life under the sun is fragile, and we know so little about what is going to happen day to day. Loved ones that we assumed would always be at the Thanksgiving table are suddenly not there. Jobs that seem so solid are suddenly gone. Now what? A a relationship that we thought was impregnable. Turns out, it wasn't. I didn't see it coming. Of course you didn't see it coming. You're finite, and you're locked into time and space. We don't see very much of what's coming. How often we reassure ourselves in the troubles of life that God is in control. Do you ever say that? Sure we do. There's a purpose for this, we hear people say in a a hard spot. I know there's a reason that this has happened, someone says. Yes, there's a reason for everything, our friend affirmingly says to us. There's a reason for everything. Even people that deny God and have no time for Christianity or for Jesus, they will borrow this truth when life hurts, won't they? They will say this. I know there's a reason that this has happened. Yet just a moment of reflection upon that statement reveals that that statement assumes that there's more than this world, right? You can't make that statement logically unless you assume that. When life goes sideways, virtually everyone wants to believe that there's a reason why it went sideways. And if that's true, that has to be because something, or more accurately, someone bigger and greater than this life gives it a reason, gives it purpose. And here Solomon confirms that. Our futures, fellow Christian, are not uncertain to God. He holds our futures, verse 1, where? Where does he hold our futures? In his hands. That's what Solomon says. And and it is Jesus who then will take that truth down to an incredibly personal and detailed level of what I would call non-randomness when he says this to us in Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. It's there on your note page. We'll put it on the screen Jesus says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is what? Forgotten by God. There's nothing random about it. God knows about all these sparrows. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Whether they're many or few today, right? (laughs) Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. 
God sees and he controls our futures with absolute clarity. Nothing ever happens to us without those tender, loving hands being involved. That's what Jesus says. In fact, speaking even more directly about those hands, do you remember these words from Jesus to every person who loves him by grace through faith? John chapter 10, 27 to 29. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of, say it church, my hand, my hand. I'm in his hands. And he goes on to say, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. Our present and our future are in God's hands. Now, that is a wonderful truth. That is wonderful news for us, for every true follower of Jesus. That's fantastic news. That is terrifying news for those who have yet to meet Jesus in a saving way because they're not in his hand. They're not in his hand. And especially is that terrifying in light of what we read next. If you flip your little note page over, everyone what, church? Everyone dies. No exceptions. That's verses 2 and verse 3. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. We all share one event in this life. He repeats that in verse 3. The same event happens to all. Now, this is Ecclesiastes code language. The same event. What's the same event? Death. It's death. He's talking about death. The righteous die. The unrighteous die. It doesn't matter who you are or how moral your character In your life, all of us can and will be overtaken by physical death sooner or later. No exceptions. Unless, of course, as a Christian, Jesus happens to break through the clouds and the voice of the archangel shouts and we caught up into heaven, right? But that truth isn't in this moment. It's true, but it's not in this moment. We all share the same event. In fact, Solomon is is even good enough here to break out for us a list of five categories of people who die. Who dies? Well, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, the religious and the non-religious. And the one who makes oaths to God, he dies. And, And the one who doesn't care about making oaths to God, she dies. Now, truth be told, most of us do not linger very long over the news that a really wicked person has died, do we? No, we don't spend a lot of, a, a lot of time there. Typically, few show up for a, an evil perpetrator's funeral. We just don't really do that. They deserved it, we think, or, or whatever. The wicked die, we get it, we're okay. But, but Solomon says, the righteous die too. 
And they die with the same irregularity and at times very unexpectedly. I still remember when we got the news several years ago here at the church while our our youth were all up at, at Hume Lake Summer Camp that one of the campers from Hemet, a teenage girl that all of our kids knew and loved, teenage girl on fire Christian, she's at camp, she suddenly suffers a brain aneurysm and she dies right there that week at Hume Lake, dies. Doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem right at all, does it? Young woman loves Jesus? Really? 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 The righteous die. The good die. Are you righteous this morning? Are you righteous? Are, are, are you a good person? Are you religious? Do you make and fulfill promises to God? It's great. That's great. But know, know that the same car accident that kills the unbeliever kills the believer. The same tornado that kills the the person scheming evil kills the on-fire Christian for Jesus. The same cancer that kills the convict doing life in prison kills the pastor of the church. Just know that. We all die. No one is exempt. As the Latin phrase, memento mori says, remember, you must die. But, but, there on your note page, the living have hope. They have hope. The living have hope. Verse 4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. <laughs> now, if, if you ask most people, which would you rather be, a dog or a lion? What are they going to say? I want to be a lion. I love to be a lion. That's easy. I'm going to be a lion. But if you ask, would you rather be a, a living dog or a dead lion? Well, now suddenly the dog becomes much more attractive, right? Solomon is most likely here quoting a saying that was very common in his day, kind of new to us, but very common in his day. Everyone would have been familiar with this expression. And the point is it really impossible to miss. No matter how great or powerful or healthy or strong you are, lion, once you're dead, then even the sorriest living animal, which in 900 B.C. was a dog, is preferable to being a lifeless lion. Why? Verses 5 and 6. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten, Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Ah, under the sun. If there is no God present, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. He lists five qualities of being dead. Thank you, Solomon, for that. 
No knowledge, no reward, forgotten, no passions or drives anymore, no more a part of this life on earth. All of it is gone, he says. Death is a hard stop forever under the sun. A person can be full of life and activity and industry and relationships, but that accident or that heart attack or that violent act or that that disease is a sudden stop to all of those things. And you don't get to come back. Once this life is over, it's over. Good grief, Tim. Really? I thought you said this was about hope. Where's the hope? It is, a, it is a message about hope, and it's in verse 4. Verse 4 holds the key. Church family, the living have hope because the living have something that the dead don't have, says Solomon. The living have time. The living have time. And time means opportunity, doesn't it? Time means opportunity. While life is precarious and uncertain, if I am wise, I can use the time that I have to be ready to die. I have time to live now for what will matter most one second after I'm dead. For each one of us, for every person in this room and every person alive on the planet right this moment, there is one moment that determines everything. And this is an unchanging truth. There is one moment for each of us that forever defines us. And it's not the same moment for everybody. For many, for many of us here in this room today, that one defining moment has already happened in your life. It's already happened. It was the moment when you, in your heart of hearts, knew that you were a sinner and that one day you'd be standing before a holy God. There was a moment in your life, in the past, when you knew that was true. And, when, and you knew that, that, that God was going to ask you, why should I let you, a sinner, into my heaven, my holy heaven? And you knew that you had no answer to that question unless the penalty of your sin was addressed, taken away. You knew your sin separated from you, from God. You knew it in your heart. But in a moment, in a single defining moment in time, you believed that Jesus, God's sinless son, took your sin penalty and paid for it with his life. On the cross, you believe that in love he he died in your place and he paid the debt you could never pay to God for your sin. God's judgment against your sin fell on to Jesus. God's justice was carried out against your sin, against all of your sin, past, present and future, every last shred of it. He leveled his justice against Jesus as your substitute and not against you. And there was a moment in time when you believed that with all of your heart. Now God's justice satisfied. He is free to be able to forgive you of your sin debt against him and to give you the gift of eternal life 
that you did not deserve. To welcome you into his heaven. Your heart was sad that, that your sin meant Jesus had to die, but, but your sin couldn't keep Jesus in the grave. And when you learned that he rose from the dead as proof that he had beaten your sin death and, and conquered the grave for you, then your heart overflowed with joy and gratitude. And you said, I'm going to live for him who died for me. That was, for many in this room today, the moment that changed everything. Defining and determining everything for the rest of your life. Forgiveness of sin, a personal relationship with God, eternity with Him. One defining, determining moment. And it's already happened for you. Praise God. Sadly, for many, many, many more people. That one moment that determines everything has not yet come. For many, that moment will come and it will come the second that they die. In that millisecond moment of death, they will pass from this world and this life into the next. One moment, it's earth, it's family, it's friends, it's air, it's body, it's beauty, it's breathing, it's heart pumping, it's life. One moment. And, 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 and it's all you've ever known. And then the very next moment, everything changes when you take the last breath. That step into the next world. And now the one thing that you've always had, you do not have anymore. What is that one thing? Time. You don't have any more time. Time has, has, has left you to the horror of such a person. You discover, I'm not prepared. I am not prepared. For the spiritual world that I've just entered. The Bible has much to say about this world. This spiritual world. Which is more real than the world we're living in right now. On your note page. Two sobering statements about this spiritual world. To come. Hebrews 9 verse 27. People are destined to die once. And after that to what? Face judgment. That's a sobering truth, isn't it? If God's Son Jesus has not borne the judgment for your sin and our faith is not in that glorious saving act that He has done for us on the cross, then we must bear the judgment of God against our sin ourselves. That's what the verse is saying. Well, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? Which is why Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear whom, him who can destroy both soul and body. Where, church? In hell. Hell, that's the Bible's all-inclusive word for eternal separation from God. Fear that, Jesus says, for the one who had time but never gave the claim of Jesus careful consideration, never acknowledged him as the only Savior, death comes, and that moment determines everything. 
That's what Solomon's saying. Now let me share with us a real-life example from Scripture of the, the one moment being played out in two men's lives. It's a moment you'll know well. Jesus is hanging on the cross between two thieves. These two are sinful, violent, wicked, guilty men who deserve to die. Jesus is none of that. He is holy, sinless Son of God. But he's dying on a cross. Listen to what happens. Luke chapter 23, beginning of verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And this thief says, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you got to know he's saying those words with gasping breath because he's, he's about to die. And Jesus also gasping says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two men. Both are going to die. They are hours from doing so. One is the now famous thief on the cross. While he was almost dead by crucifixion, he was still alive. And as long as he was still alive, he had what? Time. He had time. Time to repent. Time to believe. Time to receive forgiveness of sin. Salvation from Jesus. This is what the, 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 the thief did. He, he confessed I'm about to die. Remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. It was a simple sentence that revealed a genuine faith. And while he could not have possibly understood fully what Jesus was doing as he was hanging on that cross and dying for sin, he did understand that Jesus alone had the power to change his eternity. When you're hanging on a cross about to die, there's no time to waste, right? The real you comes out. And what came out from this man was a personal trust in Jesus as king and Lord of all. Jesus, I believe you're the eternal king. Will you remember me when who you really are is displayed for all to see? When you take your throne in heaven, will you remember me? And Jesus says, Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. That was this man's defining moment, wasn't it? The 11th hour and 59th minute of his life, this was the defining moment because he had time. He had time. Very soon after this, he left this world. He left his body. He left everything here and he entered a new realm and a new reality. And where will he be? Jesus says, you'll be with me, with me in paradise. Jesus says, I'm going to welcome you and give you a grand tour of heaven. Because you took the time and you believed in me. For the other thief, well, 
His one defining moment came too on this day. That moment when he took his last breath and there was no hope for him because there was now no more time. No more time. He lost his last opportunity to change his eternity the moment he took his last breath. Many of us have prepared for inevitable death like the repentant, believing thief. We've said by faith, remember me, Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, I remember you. I died for you. Today. You are with me. By faith. We die in hope without fear because while living we did not waste the time that we were given. We believed and we received the promise of God. Eternal life through faith in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Here's that promise. That promise of eternal life. Perhaps the single best known verse in the entire Bible. You know it well. For God so loved the world. We could insert our name right there in place of the word world and do no harm to the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Are we all in this room ready? Are we ready to die? Are we? All of us? Every single one of us? Because death is coming, isn't it? It is coming. You can't stop it. I can't alter it. It's coming. The same event happens to us all, Solomon said. But we can be ready for that moment. Why? Because we have taken advantage of something that no dead person has. We have time. And we've taken advantage of the time we've had. We can be ready by repenting of our sin, trusting in Jesus, His death and His resurrection, and the promise, eternal life. Hebrews 3.15 issues this clear and urgent call. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. For we have no idea, do we, how much or how little time we have. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Hope. Hope. Hope, Heavenly Father, you've given us hope. Hope in Jesus. Hope in Jesus because you've given us time. How do we say thank you enough for the moment that has changed everything for us, the moment that has defined our present and our future? We have believed in Jesus. He has paid our sin debt. We have received the gift of eternal life. We do not fear death. We are ready, whether that is soon or whether that is a long time away. We are ready. How we thank you. Heavenly Father, those of us who have that truth in our hearts know people in this moment who do not have that truth in their heart. And we have friends, and we have no idea how much time they have. Burden our hearts for them. Burden our hearts. Do not let us just hang out with them and not share with them life because we have no idea how much time we have. 
If you're in this room this morning, right now, you, you, you've not settled the issue of who Jesus is going to be in your life. Oh, I would say to you, my friend, now is the time and today is the day because you do not know. You do not know how much time you have. Jesus is waiting. He's offering you the gift of eternal life through faith in him. He asks you to repent of your sin, acknowledge who you are and what you are, and believe in him. Let him pay your sin debt. Cross over from death to life today. Do it today. If we can help you in that journey, in that process of, of, of what it means to pass from death to life, we'd love to do that. Pull somebody aside. Your friend here in the church, pull me aside. Let's talk. Don't let today get away. We love you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us. We get to remember that now around your table. May we do so with glad hearts and with reverent joy. Thank you for time. Thank you for Jesus. And we all say together, amen and amen.